0: Hello everyone and welcome. Thank you for joining the first ever episode of the Equity Is podcast series by Equity Labs at the University of Denver. My name is Chendu Jayton and I am the executive director of Equity Labs. Our show is committed to interrogating contemporary issues in diversity, equity and inclusion across disciplines, industries and contexts by leaning on the expertise of interdisciplinary thought leaders and elevating the voices of those who live in the margins. The struggle for equity and justice has many fronts. On the streets of Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement, in the courts with Roe versus Wade and Oberfell versus Hodges, in the classrooms with the 1619 Project and the Don't Say Gay Bill in the business and industries with the latest in unionization and pay equity struggles. We want to engage in an authentic and sometimes uncomfortable conversation with our allies and accomplices and our doubters and learners. Equity work is everybody's work. And we begin our journey by delving into what the equity landscape looks like right now and starting to define the barriers and opportunities we can expect in this work. Our goal at the end of each episode is that you walk away with a better understanding of contemporary issues, some skills and strategies that aid you in your equity and justice journey, and a sense of belonging in a community of people who are in this together. I would like to uh, start by introducing our guests for today's podcast. Um, Our first guest, Tom Romero, is the Associate Associate Provost for Inclusive Excellence and Curriculum Initiatives at the University of Denver and the founder of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Equality. Tom has authored numerous books, chapters, and essays in areas including But absolutely not limited to legal history of the American West, Latinos and the law, immigration law, uh, property, land, and water use law, uh, the urban development, um, and local government in the United States. Um, Tom, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Indeed. Our next guests are two of Equity Lab's uh, very own, uh, Brianna Johnson and Carolyn Coles. Uh, Brianna is a DU alum who holds a Master of Science in Nonprofit Leadership uh, and is a self-employed entrepreneur. Um, Brianna utilizes her background in higher education to build equitable communities and cultivate meaningful connections through project management and system strategy. Um, Welcome, Brianna.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And last but certainly not least, um, uh, Carolyn holds a Master of Arts in International Communication and is currently a third year PhD student in Criminology, Law and Society at the University of California uh, in Irvine. Um, Carolyn's current research focuses on police training Effectiveness and applied critical race theory through a mixed method experimental criminology. That is a mouthful. I hope you'll tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, she also has a background um, of working with local governments to expand their approach and understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion um, in the communities they serve. Um, so, welcome, Caroline, and thank you for joining us.
3: Happy to be here.
0: Indeed, Well, um, we certainly have a wonderful panel of thought leaders. Um, so let's uh, begin with some uh, level setting. All right So starting with the assumption that none of us have witnessed or experienced an equitable, socially just world, if you could imagine an equitable world, what? would that look like? And I'd love for you to kind of begin by uh, telling us how you enter this space and what identities inform the way uh, you answer uh, this question. Um, So maybe let's start with Carolyn.
3: Uh, Good morning, I love this question. Um, So first I am Carolyn Coles as introduced, uh, black woman, mid thirties and loving life. So. I'm entering this question with a global perspective. I've traveled a lot across the world. And um, the one thing that I've understood is in the U.S., I am first and foremost Black. When I am in a different country, I am first and foremost American. And that has its own set of stereotypes, generalizations, um, pros and cons. When I think about this question of what does an equitable world actually look like, for me, that would be absolute freedom, right? It would encompass everything that we think could be obtained from the position anybody is in, right? To make that a little bit more concrete. If I was born and raised um, in a different country and there was opportunity for me to explore my passion, I would be able to gain the education, I would get access to that other country, I would be able to leave um, and go and follow my pursuits without hindrance, I would be welcomed, I would um, be able to thrive in whatever form or method I wanted to, right? Like thinking about freedom in that way, I would be able to be free, as free as I want to be, right? And to be able to identify however I want to identify. So not only would, would the limitations of gender be released, but also nationality and color and creed, all of that wouldn't matter, right? I would definitely be able to thoroughly explore how I want my humanity to show up without any restraints that that would be the equitable world I envision.
0: Wonderful thank you yeah for someone's humanity to be to be visible and seen and appreciated in all of its glory Um, Tom I'm wondering if you could uh, share what your perspectives are.
1: Yeah thank you and such important conversations, and as I've worked with all of you in the past, I, I'm, I'm again happy to be and, and, and just honored and humbled to be in a space where I can learn as well. So um, when I start out with first kind of my, a bit of my journey, um, I always start out with uh, the fact that I stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, my First of all, my parents. I am the only child of Susana Viesquez and Tomas Romero, um, who were both born in, in Colorado. Uh, my mother was born on um, in, in Olathe, Colorado, the western slope of Colorado, um, which is far removed from Denver. Uh, my father was born in Durango, Colorado. Um, both of them, my um, paternal side of the family, um, my, my father's parents, uh, they were born in uh, the United States, and their parents were born in the United States, and their parents were born in the United States. Um, Uh, or in Mexico at that point, actually, right? And um, uh, so the paternal side of the family has roots and and connections that very much shape and inform who I am going back seven, eight generations into what we now know as uh, Southern Colorado and and Northern New Mexico and New Mexico. So that part of the family, we like to say that uh, the the border crossed us, we didn't cross the border, and it's certainly tied to a legacy of Uh, manifest destiny and American expansion and imperialism um, that has shaped the experience of, you know, so many uh, Spanish surnamed peoples in in the Americas. Um, My mother's side of the family, my grandparents, um, her parents uh, has a a story and a narrative that some of you, some of your listeners might be more familiar with. Uh, They migrated from Mexico. And in fact, they were fleeing the Mexican Revolution. Um, in the late 19-teens, and they ultimately made their way to Aletha, Colorado, uh, where they uh, purchased the farm, and um, my uh, that side of the family uh, worked on a farm uh, up until my father's death, my grandfather's death in, in 1991. My mother, my father, that part of the family formed a, a real interesting part of a, a larger community community. Um, uh, in, in Utah, in Colorado, northern New Mexico. That's where my, my parents met as part of a, a Pentecostal, actually, uh, family, um, not Catholic, which people might also assume is, is, is tied to a Mexican or Mexican-American experience. Um, my father went to the Vietnam War. My, my mother settled in Denver. And uh, ultimately, I was uh, conceived and conceptualized in, in Japan, um, of, of all places. Um, when my mother went to go visit my father uh, uh, during the Vietnam War. And so uh, I was born and raised in Denver, bused in the Denver Public Schools as part of a school desegregation order, Um, really began to experience and understand the nature of difference, uh, of segregation, uh, certainly questions of of inclusivity and and equality. Um, Ultimately, um, I actually uh, went Went to the University of Denver, where I received my BA. I went to the University of Michigan, uh, where I was there. I like to say that Barbara Gruder, um, who uh, sued the University of Michigan and wanted to become part of uh, the law school, uh, would have been part of my law school class if she was qualified to get into the University of Michigan. Um, but I was there doing during the major affirmative action debates. Um, I remember having. Uh, fellow students actually questioning whether those of us that were students of color should actually be on campus, whether we were qualified, whether they should even invite us to their study groups. Um, I was walking down the streets of Ann Arbor, and I was told to go back to the bean fields where I belong. And so these are all really informative experiences. I think the the final thing I'll say about a bit about my background is um, uh, as part of that case, uh, all of us who were students of color at the University of Michigan, the law school, um, all of our admissions files were subpoenaed um, and became part of the case record that made made it to the United States Supreme Court. And so just sort of thinking about, you know, kind of the nature of what that means if for all your listeners. If you had your college admissions files subpoenaed, right, and were reviewed by lawyers for people to understand whether you were qualified, right, um, I think is, it speaks to a larger experience, right? About borders and boundaries and who belongs and who doesn't belong. And that has, that has certainly shaped um, all the ways that, that I've certainly have thought about myself, thought about the importance of the work that I do, writing about, thinking about, uh, sometimes being able to be a collaborator, sometimes being able to be a leader, oftentimes being a follower around issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and really justice. So um, I got to sort of as I was thinking about this question, Chengdu, um, and I think uh, some sort of core things come to mind, right? In terms of what is the world that that I would imagine? I think that so many others imagine, and I think about kind of security, of kind of basic needs, right? Um, housing. Everyone should have a right to decent. Housing, right? What does that mean? It means a roof over your heads, it means clean water, it means sewage. Tied to that is health, right? There should be a basic rights, right? And security of one's health, being able to see a doctor and get the medicines they need, right? And not to have to to go into debt. Um, that's really tied to economic security. Carolyn talked so much about the importance of, of identity, right? Because One's access to housing, one's access to health, one's access to um, economic security is tied in so many ways to century-long formations about our identities and, and how having certain identities give us access to certain things and deny us access to others. And so um, another piece that I want to share, and um, this this question was very timely for me, and I think it's also connected to my, my identity uh, as well, is... Um, Uh, My partner, she's Jewish, and our children, we raised in in an interfaith uh, family. And um, my 16-year-old, my youngest son, uh, was recently confirmed um, at the synagogue. And as part of his confirmation, he needed to uh, speak before the congregation on various practices or, or sort of ideas in the Jewish faith that really resonated with him. And um, I want to share uh, what he wrote, because I think it speaks directly to your question. And so this is what he shared with the congregation just just this past uh, Saturday. He talked about the value of darche shalom, or ways of peace. And as he said, this speaks to me now more than ever. This belief means we have to help nurture and value all persons, even those who are seemingly different from us. Thinking of world events, the current Russia-Ukraine crisis is illustrative. Although a tragedy, people around the world are helping the displaced refugees fleeing the war. Yet in comparison, non-white immigrants have a much harder time getting into Western countries. The welcome of Ukrainians into Western Europe occurred more readily and with little resistance than what was experienced by Syrian refugees in 2011 or Latin immigrants to the United States today. We must build a world where every time there is a tragedy, no matter where, all countries should do all they can to help with the crisis, no matter the color of people, of a person's skin or their faith. Through inc- inclusivity, compassion for all, and a commitment to protect the most vulnerable among us is how we must build the world with darshe shalom, or ways of peace.
0: Wow. Um, thank you so much, Tom. I, there's so much in your response. It was, it almost felt like kind of three generations of imaginary Right, like from your uh, forefathers and ancestors, your grandparents, your parents, you and uh, your son. Um, so thank you so much for that. I, I, it, it, it took my breath away, uh, listening uh, to your son's words. Um, Brianna, do you want to jump in? Tell us what your imaginary looks like.
2: Thanks, Chandu. Um, I'm feeling a little emotional after hearing what your son wrote Tom Um, that's I think plays into my answer of when I when I think when I imagine an equitable world I I try to think of uh, the generations before me and after me and how that can inform what an equitable world would look like so that was Wow. So great. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. My name is Brianna. I use she, her pronouns. I am a 30 year old white woman born and raised in Colorado. So Colorado is home and I hope it stays my home for a really long time. The first time I was asked to imagine what an equitable world looked like was not that long ago. I would say like two to three years ago, actually. Um, so in contrast to tom's generations of imagining right and um i feel like for me i'm i'm the first and it feels like a lot i think it, it's hard for everybody to imagine as you said chendu what it looks like because we have never seen it before um but for me and my my brain um and my experience in my world this is challenging so I'm grateful to um, my teachers and my friends and my colleagues who have shared their experiences in the world to help me see what that would look like and imagine what that would look like. So I agree with what both Chendu and Carolyn have said. Um, I the A piece that I want to add in addition to their brilliant Answers is not only um, people able to be free to be who they are, um, where governments and corporations and communities aren't making rules against their very existence, where safety, respect, and health are foundational to our existence and our society. I think the one other piece that I would add that feels really pertinent. Uh, today and and most days recently is also adding in just this reciprocal relationship with nature um, and the environment um, because we are intimately tied to it as humans so how we interact with each other I think truly is representative of how we interact with our world and with our environment so adding that to the to an imaginary, to the imagined, to the ideal um, equitable world would make equity feel more accessible, right? If we had this reciprocal relationship with our environment and then also with each other with respect, kindness, and um, that feeling of safety.
0: Thank you, Brianna, for adding that other element uh, of equity because I think you're, you're right. Um, You know, so much of our modern understanding of the world depends on uh, kind of conceptualizing land and resources as property to be owned. Uh, um, And I think when our most primary connection to each other is through the land, uh, then that becomes a necessary part of the imaginary of equity. Um, so thank you for adding that other element. Um, you know, certainly coming to the United States as an immigrant fleeing a civil war, uh, you, know, the, you know, the concepts of safety and belonging have always informed my imaginary uh, so so much of it resonates with what you all said uh, uh, kind of my simple well not not necessarily simple but at least uh, concise idea of equity has always been um, you know when the when the authentic presentation of and performance of self is met with only celebration and there are no negative consequences to it, then we've achieved um, equity. Um, So that's kind of the condensed version of of my larger idea that uh, is so in line with what all of y'all spoke to. Um, So let's kind of switch a little bit Um, Because so much of the imaginary of equity depends on the struggles that uh, we have seen and witnessed and experienced. Um, So, you know, it feels like the urgency of an equitable world and the resistance of it are both much more palpable now than, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. Um, certainly in communities of minoritized uh, people, the urgency has always been present. Um, but um, can you reflect on what has changed in the last decade or so that that has moved this topic to the forefront um, of action and conversation? Um, Tom, uh, could you uh, kick us off?
1: Um, I'm going to put my... Um a bit of my both historian and law professor hat on here um, in the sense that uh, as a historian, always thinking about periods and periodization. And, what I would say going back to 2008 and the great recession. um, And if we recall that time, and we, it's one of the first times at least in American history and, you know maybe even world history in which something like a, a recession, even, close to a depression, did not cut deeply into the, the security, the economic securities, certainly, right, of the most wealthy in the country and the world. And in fact, what we, we began to see in 2008 is a real acceleration of massive, massive wealth transfer, right? So 2008 uh, is really the beginning, if we think about the housing crisis and um, the collapse of, of, of all of these loans uh, in the housing market, who, may, who profited off that, right? Um, you know, the really 0.01%, right? And we see beginning in 2008, 2009, 2009 right? The Occupy movements, um, the talk about the 99% versus the 1% versus I would even qualify it even more because the difference between the 1% and the oh one percent is massive, Right. Of course, accelerated, accelerated not just the United States, but but around the world. You know, massive wealth transfers that are tied to the rise of populism. Um, and so, the historian to me, says, and I've heard it: this is like the Gilded Age, right? This is like the 19th century in, in the United States when we had similar sorts of things happening, right? Um, massive wealth transfers uh, that are going to just a few privileged few. Massive income inequality, right? Massive racial inequality, uh, outrage manufactured, right? To hide, um, to obscure, you know, not just the United States, but around the world, right? So uh, outrage manufactured around race, ma- uh, outrage manufactured around sexual identity, outrage manufactured around immigration, right? To obscure and to hide from the fact that there's been this massive transfer of wealth. Uh, exacerbating um, income inequality, going back to, you know, the larger questions um, that, you know, I certainly thinking about the just world, right? Uh, Lack of housing, loss of housing, lack of of good jobs, loss of jobs, right? Uh, Lack of healthcare, loss of healthcare. Um, It's all connected. And so in in my mind, this is, uh, you know, I think the past can inform us, but the other final piece I would say now is, now is that at least my understanding is we have never seen in, in world history such gross um, inequities in, in who owns wealth and who doesn't right and we're really talking about a very very small peop- uh, amount of people that own a vast majority of the world's wealth.
0: Thank you, Tom. Uh... I I certainly think, you know, the the Great Recession uh, played a substantial part in kind of exaggerating the already percolating inequities. Um, um, Carolyn, I'm wondering if you want to jump in, uh, but also speak about the kind of uh, the more palpable resistance to equity work, right? We are seeing a kind of polarization um, that uh, Perhaps we are that we are all a little bit uh, shocked by or surprised by.
3: I, I definitely agree um, with the financial and historical implications. Um, on the the other side, I would say technology has played a critical role. Um, we had uh, the first black president, right, and that was huge, and, and the world got to see that. And there were generations who now understood what was possible, right? Like a whole group of people were born into this reality that the, the leader of um, the United States could look like them. Um, and at the same time, people were deeply frightened and that created conflict that was really injecting this uh, reality of loss of resources to people who believed that uh, people of color holding position of power directly confronted their ability to live the life that they wanted, and and that was a real point of fear for a, a large population of folks, and uh, with technology being available, accessible, uh, the realities that some folks were living was now public television. And people's ability to rise was not tied to the limitations of if you're able to get into this institution of higher education. You see influencers becoming really, really active. You see um, dancers Making money and getting called out by you know artists and being pulled into an industry just off of views, right? So that changed the landscape. That changed the world. On top of um, this frustration that I think a lot of people felt at these these doors, these gateways being open to people that they weren't originally open to. Um, You know, there was there was a boomerang effect to having the first black president. Um, And then we saw a different political agenda um, that really encouraged these kind of aggressive demonstrations of one's frustration. And what we understood living in the United States is that racism is embedded in our system and is that it was the cruelty that we saw in the civil rights movement was still alive. That was something that we were like, yeah, it was really bad then, but like we're we're over that, you know. People don't do that anymore, um, and and that wasn't the reality. We were faced with something a little more aggressive um, that we weren't expecting, and again, technology p- played a part in um, showcasing that. And then people had a real choice, right? Now you see, this is the reality of the United States. It is not something that happens in the deep South in the 1940s, right? It's it's a reality of today. Um, the civil rights movement did a lot, but it didn't undo everything, right? So now what are you gonna do? And I think the average citizen was faced with that reality. Now you've seen black people be killed by police officers in a, in, in a manner that you've only heard of in history books, or you've you've only kind of deemed to to the the past. now what are you going to do about it? So I think people were confronted with um, these realities and had to struggle and grapple with, do I want to do something about it? How much effort is that going to take? What do I know? What can I do? I don't want to do it. <laughs> like all of my friends are doing stuff, galvanizing. Should I go to this protest? What does that mean? Are they going to record me when I'm there? I don't know if I want to do that either. And then I'm going to do nothing. So what does that mean, right? So I think people had all of these different directions and avenues. And as a society, we're still grappling with that. We're still grappling with what do we do um, for for all races and colors and, and genders, of folks, and I think those who were who saw this have been poised to um, respond, and and those are the folks that you see organizing and who who have the policy draft already ready, who are stepping into positions where they can uh, dictate what what should come next. But I I think the resistance is real because it's rooted in fear, fear of losing uh, positions, fear of losing a Covenant space in in reality fear of of losing um, a status that that once was afforded to them for generations. I think the fear is we don't know what's on the other side. If I lean into letting other people have power, if I lean into, you know, affirmative action, if I lean into that, what does that actually mean for my reality?
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, You're absolutely right. I think confronted with a choice uh, of what do we do with our current reality, um, certainly too many people have chosen to resist, uh, I think. Uh, Tom, uh, you wanted to jump in.
1: Yeah, um, Carolyn's response in particular, I think sort of beginning and sort of thinking about the role of technology I think obviously more directly social media, right? Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, right? Um, I, I think it's we live in this really powerful and, and interesting and precipitous moment, if you will, right? Because one of the first things, particularly as Carolyn started talking about kind of the, the resistance and I think the lip, uh, liberatory potential, right? Of this work reminded me of the Arab Spring um, and the, the role that, that I think it was Facebook at the time, right? Really played in in bringing together democratic movements, right? Bringing people together across time and space to organize, to mobilize, and certainly to resist. Um, I think more recently we have ex- amazing examples from TikTok, right? And in, in, in the in the recent presidential election. Nevertheless, right, we also know, and I think going back to my point, right, this, this technology is increasingly controlled by, right, and owned by by limited number of people, right, that have no interest, right, in these platforms um, doing doing anything more, right, than um, increasing divisiveness and uh, increasing, you know, the bottom line, right, the, the, the profit margin, and, you know, that is, it's liberatory potential, but to be you know, connected to the fact that that these are nothing more than profit-making mechanisms, right? And how do we reconcile that is, I think, one of our challenges.
0: Thank you so much, Tom. You know, interestingly, it was just a few days ago in the office that I was having a conversation with our marketing team, and they were trying to convince me that, hey, Equal Labs should have a presence on TikTok. And I was like, what? Um, But I don't know, maybe, maybe. Um, But I think it's partially a recognition of the fact that, you know, certainly equity work is about changing systems and organizations, but it's also the project of changing hearts and minds, right? Uh, Rhetoricians have always known That discourse and language can be hurtful and cruel. They can be violence. Um, um, And part of it is just making an active choice to choose not to do that. Um, But I'm wondering, you know, if it is about systems and institutions, but also hearts and minds, is there a a more reasonable entry point into the equity work? Um, And Um, is one project more likely to succeed than the other? Um, Brianna, uh, can you uh, jump in on this
2: one? So for me, the entry point is hearts and minds because that's my nature. That is who I am and that's how I connect with people. I think human connection is a much stronger force for change than policies or procedures, but, we have to do that, too, right? Um, injustice is baked into our systems for centuries, um, and we need to simultaneously do work to undo that, too. Um, that's where we need to tap into leadership. What does leadership look like? Can we have change leadership models to be co-leadership models, where multiple identities and people and ideas can be at the helm of our organizations um from my perspective all of that goes back to changing hearts and minds um so that people who do get into power um will see the the need to change the systems in the in the end that's what i think will be the most effective so it's both (laughs) Um, and for me in my work and my interaction with people and organizations. I think coming at it from a that heart community standpoint is what gets people to open their hearts and their minds to, to change.
0: Thank you, uh, Brianna. I think you're very right that there's something about the nature uh, of our own being that informs what our entry point is. Um, Caroline, you work in the criminal justice system. That's kind of your area of expertise, Um, perhaps the system that needs the most amount of agitation and change. Um, I'm wondering what your perspective is.
3: Similar to Brianna, I don't think you can have one without the other. Um, So my work with the criminal justice system, public safety, policing specifically, um, is about changing the system. Right. It's about disrupting what we see now as a norm and creating perhaps a new norm or reimagining what public safety could look like altogether. Depends on the city I'm working with. Um, and and that work is done by changing policy, but also creating buy in on the ground so people understand and creating an environment that allows the people the employees, the police officers themselves to take up the charge and really authentically move through their work with the same love for what they do now with an understanding of I'm doing it differently because this serves a better better outcome. So changing the hearts and minds of uh, the individual is extremely important. And also in the mix, you'll lose people. You'll, you'll have people who say, I don't want to do this. Um, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I think policing should be. And then you have a choice. Okay, you can leave and go to a different institution. But I, I think for uh, my work, I try to do both. Um, in the academic field, I create a uh, I create knowledge that supports uh, the changes that that I believe need to happen so they are evidence-based, right? And that that evidence could also impact those who are creating policy so that that systems change is happening at the policy level. And at the same time, I work with police departments who are excited about change, who want to change something and really don't know how to do it yet and work with them on the ground level to create trainings or to create internal policy that uh, really impacts what they can do tomorrow. Because sometimes, as we know, our government is slow. Um, So I, I think the entry point is wherever you can get in, right? For me, the success is where you can start. So if you can start with hearts and minds, please start there. If you have access at the policy level, please start there.
0: Yeah, thank you, Carolyn. Uh, because I think you know, it, it really is about your own spheres of influence, right? Like, what area of influence do you have? Is it in the po- policy and practice landscape, or is it in the the, the kind of human growth development uh, kind of area? Um, and I think um, you know, my experience has been that. You know, rules and policies are kind of the, the, the necessary guardrails until hearts and minds change. Right? There's enough critical mass of people who buy into the idea of uh, of an equitable and socially just society. Um, you know, even as I listen to you know the the, the Human Growth Project. Uh, you know, in equity work, we've always seen education as the silver bullet, right? Like if anything is going to uh, kind of transform the way we treat each other um, and the way we uh, attend and love each other, we thought it was going to be education. Um, Now, as we see some of the legislative action that's coming out of, uh, of Florida, the kind of demonizing of critical race theory, the, the, uh, the unfounded criticism around the 1619 project, uh, right, like we, we've, I, I feel like the system that we depended on the most is perhaps the system that is under the most amount of threat. Um I would I would love for one of you to reassure me that it isn't as bad as it feels like. Um or maybe it is. Um uh so uh,
1: Tom what's your thought? Can you reassure me? Probably not. Um <laughs> I so I, I love this question because I think for so many of us, right, that are particularly in these spaces, right, that, um, that, that value so deeply education, right, you know, beyond just a, you know, uh, whether it's a high school diploma, you know, we, we have made the choice, we've made the decision, hopefully, right, Um, we have, many of us have struggled, right, to attain additional degrees, right, and so, I think at the core and the DNA of so many of us that are in places like the University of Denver and in higher education, right, this is this is so true. Right, education is the path to, to equality. It's, it's, it's the path to enlightenment. Right, it's the path to justice. It's the path to understanding. Um, that and and I think one of the things that I you know reminded me of um, one of the first um, articles I wrote when I came to the University of Denver. Um, was an article titled um, more valuable than the gold in the mountains and it was actually examining the history of what became the education clause in the colorado constitution uh, providing for a thorough and uniform education and so even embedded in our legal structures right in our constitutional document our founding as a state right is a commitment to right a constitutional commitment to education so that is that's core so i think it's been a core belief of of every you know sort of uh, democratic project right i think in the in the history of the world. um that said right and this this is what gives this is this is where i maybe don't provide much hope for you Chengdu, but i think again the historical component i think is is really important right um you know, I, I look back, right, I write about this, and I mentioned, right, I'm a product of being bused in schools, right, which if you look back to the Brown v. Board of Education, right, when did education become such a flashpoint, right? When did it become a, a matter of massive resistance, right? It was when we wanted to integrate our classrooms, right? We wanted people of color to be in the same classrooms, which meant being In the same neighborhood just meant being in the same playground and meant being in the same workplaces right as as white folks so we have this and we and we if we go back to the 50s and the massive resistance that i would argue right has continued to this present day right what is different from now not much right i mean when you when you highlight the 1619 project when you highlight the importance, I mean, critical race theory, we all know, right, is is kind of a false narrative. But what it what it's really attack on is having a curriculum that deals forthrightly with issues of race in the United States. Right. So in some ways we have integrated curriculum. So what is what, what is the attack today? It's, it's not just on the number you know, people of color and non-people of color sharing classrooms but it's about sharing knowledge that's sophisticated, right? That that challenges these systems and institutions that can maybe capture hearts and minds, right? Uh,
0: I, I definitely agree with your point that our system of education, this isn't the first time it's been under attack, right? Like ever since we decided that schools were going to be funded by local property taxes Uh, I think we we'd created some uh, artificial kind of systems of segregation in terms of quality of schools and the quality of education Uh, certainly these are just the most recent uh, flashpoints Um, um, Brianna you're a hearts and minds person can you reassure me
2: i wish i could (laughs) um i i agree that um education is an essential part of building belonging and understanding and just as tom has you know shared with us and emphasized is that it has been a project of white supremacy culture to eradicate that from the education system um so um, I do think that this is as bad as it sounds. I also think that this is just white supremacy culture and um, systems working the way they were meant to work, right. One thing we we emphasize in equity labs is these systems were built to minoritize people, and they're working exactly as they were intended. Um, And I think that that is still the case, right? It's still the machine that was built by people to marginalize some and put some in power forever is working just as it's intended. Um, So that's pretty um, dim. And I do think that there is still reason for hope. Right, we, we need to keep the process of having conversations, of working with hearts and minds, uh, as, as you said earlier, as I said earlier, uh, to, to try to show people that your power is not worth it. <laughs> um, it's not worth this fight. It, you will thrive and be happier and healthier if you choose to open your mind and your heart to the experiences of others.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a, um, that's, a that's a necessary uh, kind of um, perspective. And I think you did reassure me a little bit. So thank you for that. So Tom, it sounds like you have some reassurance to give me as well in regards to the state of education here. Um, I would love to take that uh, as well.
1: Yeah, I uh, I definitely don't want to leave leave on such a bleak note. And I think I'm certainly inspired by Brianna, and, and, and also kind of being in conversation with, with you know the people in this in this room. But also again, kind of going back to why why am I in the space of education? Right. Um, it's been reinforced for me so many times, and I think it's why. I myself chose this path um, uh, is, is the power of youth, right, and, and education to unleash and unlock the potential of youth. And I think we have so many examples of, of young people who have, who are thinking critically about the world, right, that have a sophisticated understanding based upon their education, right, of of equity, of inequality, right, that ultimately creates, I think, empathy, right, for, for uh, the world, um, you know, their fellow, whether they're students, their neighbors, right, their fellow human beings. And, um, and so I think as soon as we can, tr- we, we can match those youth with the, the education they deserve, right, and as soon as we can turn the world over to them as quickly as possible, I think things are going to change dramatically.
0: I think you're right. The, the the greatest amount of hope that I have for our future is definitely in our uh, in our young folks. They are truly a, a, an inspiring and, and resilient uh, group of folks. I also uh, kind of think about the folks who are doing uh, this work. Now, you know, the workplaces are changing. I'm seeing more and more organizations uh, kind of take seriously DEI work. Uh, They're bringing in people, but I'm also noticing that these people are the folks who are burning out uh, and either leaving or moving this kind of work. Um, What is it about this kind of work um, and how it's being positioned that might be contributing to this um burnout and and what is the remedy for that um Carolyn, do you wanna take that one on
3: sure um I think about this a lot because it's I hold several d e i positions um <laughs> both in service to my university um for a local government that I work with and also with equity labs so i I think a couple of things are happening. So institutions that are um, looking for these types of folks to do this work, I think have a bias towards or a preference towards people of color. They, they tend to think that folks of color inherently just know more diversity, equity, and inclusion things based on an assumed lived experience. So one, I think um, overwhelmingly, those folks are put into these positions, and at the same time, the position is one of superhero—do it all, fix it all, make it so we hire the right people all the time, make the language on our website perfect, um, teach us about sexuality and gender, and also about racism and systemic oppression. Um, it's it's a catch-all for everything, where I would like to see. This these types of positions be supported with a team, supported with a budget, um, to have more people in the position, meaning it's not just a director level, but um, at every position within the organization, there's someone whose efforts are towards diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, also unpopular position, I think it should be temporary because I think that this is something that should be everybody's job, everybody's focus. It should be baked into the fabric of the organization. And to get there, yes, you may need a dedicated department, you may need dedicated folks, but it should be a dedication that has an an expiration date and the, the normalcy should be this is everyone's position. What's, everybody has a shared level of understanding, and we have shared language, and we know what the, the goal is. This is everybody's work um, for people of color or I- even other positions like uh, disability. If, if you yourself have one, and this is what you have to talk about every day, and you have to teach people about um, their ignorance every day, and you have to have a, a large amount of compassion and empathy for people who just don't get it every single day. That wears, that wears on, on me. It, it, it would wear on the person. And if the infrastructure of the organization isn't such that you can take sabbatical, that you have colleagues, that you have peers, that you can um, have community to talk about the frustrations, then yeah, you get burnt out because this is something, it's not like a finance job that like at five o'clock, the banks are closed and it's over. This is a reality of being human and to do that for your life's work and also to be human outside, right? Like most people have families, most people have partners where you still have to have this level of empathy. Your work is also your life. There aren't enough boundaries. And I think our society is new and excited about diversity, equity, and inclusion positions and haven't put the right uh, infrastructure in place around these type of positions. Like I said, with the budget and the the adequate staff and um, support, I think a lot of organizations want this and then they get it and they don't really understand that their organization isn't ready for it. So like the person in power that hired you might be like, yes, it's a great idea. Let's all do diversity training for everybody every two weeks. <laughs> then you get there, and the staff is like, "What? Why do I have to come here? What is this? What are you talking about?" Um, they didn't create the foundation for that, so I think burnout is is easy for for that type of position. And I mean, I didn't even talk about the salaries, but let's talk about the you know the pay, the pay for this kind of work. This is a it's a labor of love for a lot of us, and. same time we're really good at our jobs right and um that should be that should be paid accordingly meaning higher than what you think it is so if any of you out there (laughs) are employers double it i'll just leave it there double double the salary period
0: i certainly wouldn't mind a, a higher paycheck and you know as as you were talking um i was thinking about this kind of intentional practice uh, that, uh, that my partner and I have agreed to, which is, you know, when I leave work, I take the train back, which is about 50 minutes. Um, And that is time where I'm kind of cognitively processing the day, the things that I was able to accomplish, the hearts and minds that I was able to change the ones that I didn't uh, kind of working through the guilt of of not succeeding working through the shame of not succeeding but it's a deal that i made with my partner was to do that work during the train and then leave it the minute i get home um because uh, because that the risk that i take on by bringing all of that home is much too great so it's an intentional kind of barricade that i put uh, put there uh, Brianna, I'm curious uh, you've been doing this work for a while. Any thoughts on remedies that that uh, might work for you?
2: I have a lot of ideas and thoughts about this, and the way Carolyn opened up was the first thing that came to my mind when I heard your question that the folks that organizations are are asking to lead this work are mostly folks of color, mostly folks with minor, minoritized identities. Um, and they live their life with a minoritized identity all day, every day, in and out of work. So to lead the work for their work <laughs> um, is is just additional processing and labor, kind of as, as you were talking about with your experience of thinking about how you navigated the day, working in DEI and how does that manifest in the rest of your life? Um, So I I feel pretty strongly that DEI work is collaborative, should be collaborative. It should never be one person, you do it all. You're the person, you are the only one. Um, I actually Tom, I feel like I learned a lot of this from you: is how to lead DEI work in a collaborative manner, not only to do it well, but also to preserve your own uh, endurance. Right to to be to make it endurance, make it sustainable. Um, so a lot of the things Carolyn said were, um, you know, surrounding leaders with resources, both financial and human um making sure that they are supported in the work i also think of um, folks who are put into these positions in organizations that have never thought about diversity equity and inclusion ever and just because of the societal demand that organizations address this they're like cool we'll put someone in a position and they'll do that <laughs> um, while it is essential that we start talking about this. I have, I don't disagree with that at all. There's a lot of prep that needs to happen, and I do think that goes back into hearts and minds, right? So um, there might be some advantage to have someone with privileged identities leading some of this work because the people who are in the work already also have privileged identities. Right. So for someone to come in and say, I'm now leading you in this work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but you've never seen a person like me, you've never uh, had a colleague or a family member like me, but you should trust me. I think that's hard. Just human nature, that's hard. So to take the steps to collaborate, to make the work collective um, so that leadership is truly diverse and also representative of what the organization looks like um i think can be a really helpful key so that folks don't get burnt out right because they have a a collaborative of people around them folks are more likely to invest in their own education for diversity equity and inclusion if the people leading them through the journey is a collective is a a combination of education of race of gender of creed to jump on board and be like yes i I want to invest, I see that my well being is wrapped up in your well being and
3: let 's do this together
0: Carolyn, uh, you had something to say. jump in, please
3: Yes, I just wanted to uh, echo uh, several points of brianna's um, Specifically, thinking back to uh, what we imagine an equitable world could be, right, in this applying it to this context of question, um, very similar to what Brianna said, I, I would love to see where those folks that are championing the work of equity, diversity, and inclusion are not hold, held captive by the identities that they hold, Right. Um, I have been in spaces where the team that has come in has been all white females and the chatter amongst the audience is like, what are they here for? What are they about to teach us? Like, is this a diversity talk? Did I come to the right place? And and then blown away, you know, by the insight, the poise, the vulnerability of, of these folks because they've done the work right and they're coming from a perspective of understanding the systems in which we operate and how to disrupt and dismantle them and and from the perspective of what they've been told how they've been conditioned to operate in this world that marginalizes other people that is such a valuable perspective that i've seen employers dismiss because they're white right and i think coming into this work it's not all about your race. Um, In policing, most people, most police officers want another cop in front of them. That is the most salient identity you must have to speak to a group of police officers. I am not a police officer and yet I do it effectively because I've done the work, right? And everybody doesn't like me. I'm not everybody's cup of tea, but I will sit and have an in-depth conversation without... Um, judgment and on a, a level playing field to understand the perspective of another person who happens to be employed as a police officer in an effort to find common ground. And I think once we get to a space where we're understanding that is the work, right? Like Brianna said, connecting our humanity and understanding where our gaps are and moving forward in, in steps of love to, to heal the wounds and to help us see clearly each other as people. That's the work. Whoever can do that work is the right person for the job. Who should be paid double? That's all.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, I've I've seen Tom at work when it c- comes to, kind of building these networks that are built on that kind of empathic love. Uh, and I've also kind of witnessed uh, you, Tom, kind of leveraging that network for the the betterment of, of the institution, but also for self-preservation and, and, and self-care. Um, I'd love to hear um, how you do it, uh, what has worked for you, uh, um, in kind of doing that work
1: well, well thank you, Chendu. Um, I, I think part of, part of I think some of the the answer to this question I think is is connected to understanding you know that larger question you asked is what keeps us from getting burnt out right and it's really identifying um and and empowering those who share the similar the same passions and the same commitments to this type of work, right? Um, I think there's a time, right, and there's a place for some of us to to realize that we do need to be in spaces to to you know, for lack of a better metaphor, bang our heads against the same wall, understanding that it's not going to break that wall at all, right? But it's important for us to be in those spaces, but that's not sustainable. What's more sustainable, right, is identifying pathways and and opportunities to to work with those that really care about you, um, care about your work, uh, have a humility and a humbleness to know that the work's not just about any one individual, but it's oftentimes about the institution. Like I said, we can't break that wall, but, but what's fun is you can figure out how to work around the wall, right? Or we can, we, we can work around ways to build ladders to get to scale that wall, if you will, right? And then having the opportunity to, to work with such great and brilliant minds um, around that, um, you know, the more people that have this passion and bring those perspectives to, to me is, is is centrally important. You know, I think either there's sort of three things that I think are really important um, for institutions, you know, I think in this regard to, to help people, right, to to Identify those opportunities to work with others to to create new worlds, right? To have new imaginaries, new new possibilities, and I think one of the challenges every institution has and continues to have is the larger question of why, right? Why are we doing this work? What is the purpose? For so many institutions, both Carol and Brianna pointed it out, is performative, right? Um, it's because others are doing it, right? Um, it's because they've seen, you know, some leaders seen something on the news and figures that, that they need to, to you know, uh, engage in this work, but not really understanding what it's about, right? So the why is important. The second piece is the what. So if, if, if you're gonna engage in this work, I think you need to understand that it's based upon, you know, a long, sophisticated, understanding of systems and institutions and of histories and of identities, it's, it's interdisciplinary, right? It's rigorous. Um, it's not just good intentions, right? But it's its having an understanding and a deep understanding of organizations. We, w- Those of us that have been doing this work for a long time, you know, one of the ways that this manifests itself is the competing and contesting notions of terminology, right? Um, multiculturalism, diversity, inclusive excellence, inclusion, equity, right? Um, and everybody has multiple definitions of what that means, right? So um, I think ultimately, I think coming to some some common understandings or ultimately sort of a, a common basis of the why, right? Final piece I would add is the where. Where does this happen? Um, Carol and Brianna, I think, identified really kind of the frontline people, right? So that, that That are engaged in this work all, all the time. And I think, Caroline, in particular, identified the importance of it being everybody's job. But what I would say is that I think there are two for every institution. There are two primary push points that should always be should be thinking of. That's the top. Right. Whether at the University of Denver, you're talking about the board of trustees, uh, the chancellor, the president, right, Um, board of directors and, you know, both nonprofit as well as for profit institutions they need to set the tone, right? They're, they're the ones that need to, to really embrace the work and lead the work and embed it, right? As part of the mission, the vision uh, uh, of the organization, right? Without that, this work is just, it's, it's gonna really sort of, it's gonna be piecemeal, right? It's gonna be, um, be at the margins. The other kind of push point in every organization um, is to me is the most vulnerable, right and having an uh, and, and so if you have the top right that is really pushing a mission a vision and policies and practices to protect the most vulnerable then you can begin to embed that work right throughout the entire institution and so um so the why the what and the where i think is centrally important i right, you know for any institution to think about that and then what it does right i think at the end of the day going back to your question precisely of me right? It, it empowers all of us to be excited about this work, right? To find others that can help grow and to help build, right? And we know that we're ultimately building something together that the institution values. And the final point is, I mean, until an institution does that, right, then we, we you know, those of us that are in these spaces, we identify those values because we do have agency and we build, right, what, what we can.
0: Absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Tom. Because I, I think, you know, you answered the, the why, the what, and the where. And I think in both Carolyn's and Brianna's question, uh, response, it was also the who, right? Like who's doing the work and how do we value them for their expertise, for their learning? Um, uh, really important considerations to keep in mind, um, when doing this work. Um, I think the last question uh, that I'll pose to you, you know, we've been in these spaces for a long time. Um, uh, Certainly I've benefited from the equity community and the DU community. Um, And for me, that is where I find hope. Uh, But I'm curious, what keeps y'all up at night And what gives you hope uh, to wake up the next day and go back to work, um, knowing that it's not going to be an easy one? Um, uh, Brianna, do you want to start us off?
2: Yes, I can start. So some of the conversations that we've had about education um, keep me up at night. (laughs) Um, And the fact that people invest so much time and effort to limit the freedom and instill fear in people (laughs) it's infuriating it's unthinkable it's real um and it it really makes it hard when the days are hard when when the days are like this is why are we doing this what's the point um all of that feels really really heavy um and knowing that my friends and family members and colleagues are also up at night because they simply fear for their well-being and for their safety um i can't stand that and it drives me crazy and um that's why I'm here. That's why I will always continue to be here, um, always continue to participate in the conversation, to um, educate when that's my place, and to support people who are asking for my support. And <laughs> I know that my life has value if I do the right thing. And to me, that's ensuring that people feel valued, seen, heard, and that they belong in our communities, in our state, in our country, and in the world. And that's why I keep going. That's what keeps me here and keeps me aligned with the work, knowing that this will be this is part of my life, this is my life process, um, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else.
0: Thank you, Brianna. Tom, what about you? What keeps you up at night? What gives you hope?
1: Yeah, um, great question. Um, so I think just to build a bit on what Brianna said, and you know, I really, what, what keeps me up at night is is so much of the lack of empathy. Um, and really, in some ways, the the active the active engagement in wanting to cause harm to others, particularly by those that are in positions of either privilege and or leadership, um, oftentimes in leadership positions, just the lack of empathy. It's 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 a failure to understand that that their failure to act, their um, inaction around policy and procedure, their inconsistent messaging, right, causes harm, right? Um, uh, But, you know, there are so many others, right, that that use their privilege, you know, whether it's their racial privilege, their gender privilege, or sexual identity privilege, to celebrate and and to cause outright harm. And I think I think I feels like we've seen acceleration of this, right, in so many spaces, public places, walls at the University of Denver, right, you know, more recently, airplanes, right, um, uh, Supreme Court decisions, right, um, or future decisions, right, as examples of just actively having lack of empathy and or understanding that, that, that their decisions are going to cause harm. And I think tied to that, too, is you, particularly around leadership, is we have so many more narrowing pathways to leadership, right? So uh, I sort of think about this in context of our political representation, right? We have so many gerrymandered districts, right? We have a, a minority in... Uh, a majority of states, right, that are making the decisions for a majority of people, right, that are that is causing harm. Um, it's true in higher education, right? When you look at the selection, the increasingly so- secretive selection, right, of leadership, um, you know th- that happens. Um, uh, the lack of those to be engaged, right, uh, in the process, and certainly uh, the failure to listen to those who who. Uh, do have access right to ultimately have their their voices heard in the process so that that you know that is that that is what keeps me up at night. You know I think I think perspective is important right and um, I was just in a conversation yesterday uh, with someone who's fairly new to the University of Denver and. Um, as an institution, we know we're a prim- primary white institution, I say we're a historically white college and university, right, which means that we were rooted in exclusion. Um, but I have connections that go back to the University of Denver from last century, and they were asking me, like, what has changed, right? And I think every step we take forward, sometimes we take you know, three steps back, but nevertheless, right. I think you know there are. There's an increasingly mass of, of um, greater diversity, right, on, on the campus. In the nearly 30 years I've been associated in, this, in the institution, there's a reimagination, uh, a redistribution of some resources, right, like to the Equity Lab, certainly to uh, something I've been very privileged to be part of, um, the interdisciplinary research institute for the study of inequality. Um, having position uh, people in positions of power to be you know at the table right um, you know Carolyn and I got to work with Frank to it right to, um, to speaking of standing on the shoulders of giants right so you know those all those pieces weren't necessarily in play I think understanding that where you know, where progress has happened to continue to build on that progress, continue to resource it and to continue to develop it, continue to create those opportunities in which we can collaborate, connect and grow. And um, that, that's one of the reasons I'm at the university of Denver It's one of the reasons I, I remain at the university of Denver is uh, there are so many great people. Um, everyone that is part of this podcast, right. That I've been associated with, um, continue to be associated with people that would come in that, that continue to help grow and build. And um, that gives me hope and that gives me excitement.
0: Thank you, Tom. Um, I know, you know a future conversation will be about the impending Supreme Court decision that is coming down. Carolyn, um, same question. What keeps you up at night? Uh, what gives you hope?
3: If, if you'll afford me a little bit of um, elasticity here, I'm going to answer the question the way I want to. <laughs> Quite literally, nothing keeps me up at night. Um, in this work, I have learned that sleep is paramount. It is important. Um, so I do not allow any ignorance of the society to rob me of, of my rest. Um, but what I will say is that when I, I I'm in this work with a very clear vision, and um, I didn't come about it haphazardly, but there have been um, a system of things that that worked in my life to bring me in in front of police departments in this country, and that is my sole focus until. I am directed elsewhere. So I would say I, I do this work because I've seen the power of its transformation. I have been uh, blessed in my short tenure with police departments to see the effect of, of my influence. Um, and I don't say that lightly, but I've seen I've seen the fruits. I've seen the fruits of it. And um that definitely keeps me going. I will say, I try to leave it all on the on the concrete every single day. So I put my all into my work and I have moments of great despair and I have a beloved community that I can call, that I can um, Google Duo, not FaceTime, um, quickly to get in front of them and and to reassure me, um, some of my, my best practices are to, and this goes into hope, are to keep a list of people who have my back, right? Being in the writing the line of of deeply loving my black community and also caring about police officers is not easy. I'm I'm misunderstood on both sides often. And I know that there are people who get me, there are people who understand, there are people who support what I'm doing, and I literally have their names written out, posted um, in my office, it's like a long list, it's it's eight sheets right now, and I just kind of look at it, and like, okay, cool, they'll behind me, and these are also the people I can call at a drop of a dime, like, tell me why I do this again, can I quit? <laughs> Frank to is at the top of that list. And his answer is always no. <laughs> you can't quit. Um, but I, I think in, in the, the eyes of my nieces and nephews, right, in the eyes of the next generation, I explain to them what I do and their innocence of not even understanding the mountains they have to cross gives me hope because my hope is they won't even have to see that mountain, right? like because it's not something on the forefront of their mind right now, maybe our society can work fast enough to make it a non-obstacle. Solana is gonna get to see someone that looks like her on the Supreme Court. That will be her reality, period. She will never have not seen that. Um, That's huge, right? And now with the White House press secretary, again, someone who looks like her, unequivocally without any other option, right? That's who she will see first. And I think those things are the things that continue to give me hope, that continue to drive this work for me. Um, What I do is a drop in the bucket. And what I've learned is that I can influence those who come behind me who want to do similar work, those who um, hold weapons in our country and, and who carry weapons as part of their job as police officers, I can influence them to think differently. I will never see the impact I make because the impact I make is one less person killed, right? That is the measurement of of what I do. I'll never get to know what what that is. And that's beautiful to me, <laughs> right? Because that means I'm doing it. So I, I, I definitely think um, there's a lot of hope out there and the grind is real and, I have a therapist. Self-care is important um, to get a good, good community around you. Some people who really can remind you why you do this work. Um, Brianna is one of them. She has been with me since the beginning of of this policing part of the journey. Can pinpoint, like, remember when you said or like you you did this before this. I know it's hard, but you can do it again. Like those moments are so important. Um, And also the reason why I sleep so well. So I would say stay hydrated, get good sleep, um, get good people around you and just stay the course because it's it is not a quick or easy fight. It is definitely a marathon where we will pass the baton to to generations.
0: Thank you so much, all three of you, for such a vivid articulation uh, of hope that I can Hold on to uh and 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 use when i when I need it um I will say you all give me hope because I've seen the the power that that all three of you um possess I've seen the conviction with which you you go to work the the determination to disrupt the systems that need disrupting um and I think um, I'm so humbled and privileged to, um, to, have, to have this conversation with you. Um, so thank you very much for your time, for your thoughts, your expertise, um, and the love with which uh, you've kind of shared your stories um, and your positions. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you for joining us in our inaugural Equity Is podcast, where we discuss the current equity landscape with the people who are doing the work of building a more equitable world. Equity work is difficult work that is worth doing. It is done in community and it is a responsibility we all carry. To learn more about the cutting edge approaches of Equity Labs and iRise, please visit equity-labs.org slash support equity. You can support our innovation by contributing to our One Day for DU project. I want to thank our guests today for joining in and the Equity Labs production team for bringing this project to life. We hope you will join us for our next episode. Equity is engineering a better world where we grapple with the equity issues and barriers in STEM education and industry. As long as inequity exists, we will innovate for equity.